What's beneath the surface of true crime? Uncover brings you there with premium investigations that demand justice. Each season delves into a distinct case, from the inner workings of a cult to the disturbing legacy of residential schools. Promising new content year-round, Uncover will take you on a journey through explosive revelations with hosts dedicated to revealing the truth. Uncover, the best in true crime. Find it on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. More than a million people have fled to Rafa to escape the fighting. Most are living in tents. We're all hearing that there will be a ground incursion into Rafa. Where do we go after Rafa? Where? Into the sea? Rafa is a pressure cooker of despair. In Rafa, a displaced Gazan waits for the next assault. That's coming up on Day 6. Today... Illegal, unregulated, and booming. These kind of mysterious substances. Magic mushrooms get retail outlets as psychedelics go mainstream. Making room for a louder audience. This opera is for everyone. How relaxed performances make venues more inclusive. And still surviving. You know, Gloria has Gloriaisms that I now tell my daughter. Gloria Gaynor gets a second act, but still loves her disco diva roots. All today on Day 6, the Oh No, Not I edition. We don't have options. I have been forced to flee several times. There is no place to go. That's Yusuf Hamash. He's an aid worker with the Norwegian Refugee Council. He is in Rafa, the southernmost part of Gaza. As the Israeli army came into Gaza from the north, more than a million Palestinians, including Yusuf, have fled south, sometimes more than once. At the beginning of this war, I used to live in the northern part of Gaza, in Jabalia camp, then I had to... I was forced to flee to another place in the north, then to Khan Yunus, now to Rafa. And unfortunately now I don't have any other options. Normally, Rafa is home to about 250,000 people. But since the conflict began, about a million and a half Palestinians have fled there. Many are now living in tent camps and UN-run shelters. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he has ordered Israeli forces to prepare to evacuate civilians from Rafa and then push into the city in order to defeat Hamas. We have only in front of us the Egyptian border and I don't think that Egyptians will welcome us. So literally we are trapped between the Egyptian border and Israeli tanks. Yusuf Hamash is with his wife and two children in Rafa. Yusuf, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Yusuf, I know that you and your family are in the middle of an incredibly difficult situation, but how are you holding up? And again, I wish I have an answer for that question. Yeah, we are holding up because we are forced to hold up. We don't have any other option. And trust me, if I have that option to give up, I would have gave up since the day one of this madness around us. Yeah, we are coping day by day. Our cycle of life is one day. If we manage to survive a day, then we are lucky. Then we think about the next day. So, again, I keep saying that, but mentally uh, we are unstable somehow because of what we are going through. So even I, I don't know how, how I'm holding up. We've reached you in Rafa. That is not your home. Can you describe the living situation in Rafa for you and your family right now? 
And unfortunately, the situation in Rafah is unimaginable. You're talking about more than 1,500,000 citizens have been forced to flee from the northern part of Gaza, Gaza City, Middle Area, and Khan Yunis. And we are all trapped in Rafah. Rafah as a city is 55 square kilometer. And we are trapped on the northern part. We have the Israeli tanks and the ground operation taking a place in Khan Yunis. And the other side, the southern side, we have the Egyptian border. And we are trapped inside, yani, going through a daily challenge to provide drinkable water and food for our children and for the people that we are responsible for. And I never imagined that we will go through such a scenario. And yani even our worst case scenario was way lower than what we saw in, in during this four to five months of madness. Now we are locked in Rafah and unfortunately now I don't have any other options. And you know, everyone's talking, especially the Israeli media about the ground operation in Rafah. They will expand the war to include Rafah. While it's every day we have airstrikes in Rafah. Yesterday, last night, 14 people were killed in the western part of Rafah. So we have to bear with it and when the bombing get intense more in, in, in the night. So we are, we are living the day to provide whatever we can provide. And then we are trapped waiting during the night because of the massive bombing. Then the, it's a continuous earthquake that we are having in the night from what's happening in Khan Yunis. So imagine how people thinking about what's going to happen in Rafah. It's a chaos, literally. What does it look like when 1.5 million displaced persons come to a city? Are there tents? Are there people sleeping on the streets? Where are the services for everyone? So unfortunately, Rafah as a city doesn't have the capacity. Rafah doesn't have a main hospital, for example. What we have is some small clinics before the war. So there is no access for any infrastructure like public health, or any other services, sewage. All the public services in Rafah were facing an issue before the war. Now add all the waves of displacement to that, so you can imagine how is the situation here. We are literally seeing people on a daily basis living on the pavement, on sidewalks. People just get anything to cover their head and they consider it as a shelter, unfortunately, without any means of protection. Now it's a dream to have a tent. And if you are, have a tent in Rafah, that means you are from the luckiest people who were able to have a tent. Now, if people are getting any piece of plastic, would stick it with wood and consider it as a shelter. Yani. It, it, it's really crazy, especially with the harsh weather that we are going through. Yani. There is nothing related to protection from the harsh weather and people are in the night freezing and I was talking to a doctor friend of mine who was working in a hospital in Rafah and he told me that he personally witnessed 12 child who died from cold and we are in 2024 and people are suffering and dying only from cold because it doesn't have anything to warm them it's it's really chaotic situation and when you think about it in general in Rafah, I don't know how we are living this life. It's all what we are doing is just finding some bread and some drinking water for the family. That that's that's our daily life. And that's a huge challenge by the way. To find drinking water, you have to stand in a queue waiting. If you go to the we have one operating bank in Rafah. If you went to the ATM, the only ATM operating in Rafah to withdraw money 
have at least every day 10 to 20,000 people waiting in line just trying to get any piece of money which also the money is a bit useless because the prices have inflated in a crazy way yeah. just as an example one kilo of onion cost 50 shekel 50 shekel is like 20 dollar mm -hmm. 15 to 20 dollar just to have one kilogram of onion so well we've been hearing warnings of, of the possibility of mass starvations in Gaza do you do you see evidence of that Unfortunately, when, when you look to the people faces in Gaza, you can understand that we are on the verge of a famine. So today I, I saw that's that became really common when there is a lot of families who cook publicly in the streets and feed the others. And you can find that a small amount of food, which is not enough for 20 people, you will find 500 people waiting in line to get any piece of bread or any piece of anything to eat or just to get it for their families. It's above our limits as a human being to live in this situation. I, I know there is thousands of families who sleep without having their breakfast from the previous day. There is families who didn't find anything to eat for a couple of days. And also the aid that coming through Rafah crossing is barely can cover 10% of the need. That's why that what pushed people to start looting the aid because it doesn't cover the need. And we found ourselves in this nightmare that it doesn't end. Yusuf, if the military action that the Israeli government has said is about to begin in Rafah does start to unfold, what will you do? What, how will you protect your family? Yeah, and unfortunately, we run out of options. There is no more options for us to take. We are trapped here in Rafah. We cannot move from Rafah to any different location because Rafah and Khan Yunis are connected to each other. Where I'm staying in Rafah, west of Rafah, the Israeli tanks are away from my place, less than one kilometer. Now, people in Rafah being displaced, putting their tents next to the border directly in the Philadelphia area, and for them, it's a glimpse of hope that they are next to the border. It, it, it will give them a sense of safety. But unfortunately, it's even there, it's not going to be safe to be next to a massive wall with electric fence. And so literally, we are trapped between the Egyptian border, Israeli tanks. If the Israelis decided to start uh, to expand their military operation in, in, in Rafah, for us, it means that the world is collapsing, Khalas, and we ran out of options and solutions. Do you imagine a return home to Jabalia one day? Do you, do you think your home still exists? Do you think your, your, your belongings are still there? Um, no, I don't have anything belong to me there. Nothing remains for me there, or even my parents, my sisters, none of my relatives have anything remains there in the north. You're talking about... 85% of the housing units from the northern part of Gaza and Gaza City were totally destroyed. So, And my house is one of them. I, a few days before the war started, I bought my new house and I want to have a better living conditions for my family. But unfortunately, even before I start living in it, they also destroy it. So I literally have nothing left for me. And for me... I, I don't think about that at all because now I'm in a survival mood. All what I think and I care about is to provide needs of my children and to protect them as much as I can. And when I decided to leave the North, I put everything behind my back and I will never think about it. And a few days ago, there was a misquoted news 
from one of the media outlets that we had a truce or a ceasefire. People were whistling, shouting the street because they are starving for such a news. I thought that it's literally a ceasefire because thousands of people were shouting, whistling. At that moment, I had I, I start to think about what remains for me, which is nothing. I don't think I have the ability to recover and start again. All what I have is the clothes I'm having, few bags that I managed to get with me, and that's that's my entire life now. I have nothing left for me, and I again I don't have the ability or the capability to start my life again from the scratch, especially among all of this mass destruction. So I, I usually keep avoiding thinking about that because now I'm living day by day. I just looking to survive. Yusuf Hamash, thank you for taking time to talk to us. Please stay safe. I hope we will speak again. Thank you so much for hosting me. Yusuf Hamash is an aid worker with the Norwegian Refugee Council. He's in Rafa in Gaza. Still to come on day six, magic mushrooms are being sold openly and illegally in boutiques and shops around the country. Why it's tolerated and what that means. Super Bowl Sunday, it's a big deal for all the reasons we know. The game, the food, the commercials, the entertainment. Hello, Usher. And this year, there's something more. Kansas City Chiefs star tight end Travis Kelsey is dating Taylor Swift. Are you ready for it? You knew that, right? Her presence in the stands this season has attracted a huge amount of attention, some of it deranged, and the Super Bowl hype machine has dialed that up to 11. I'm Victoria Morton, and I'm co-founder of T-Swift Dance Party Canada. I was watching YouTube videos last night, actually, trying to understand the game and understand like the rise of different key players. So for me, it's, it's definitely sparked a bit more of an interest, and I'm not ashamed to say that I am a bandwagoner in that regard. I'm Miri Macon, and I'm the other co-founder of T-Swift Dance Party Canada. I think it's kind of hilarious, <laughs> honestly. I think it's wild that, you know, Taylor just being in the vicinity has opened up like a massive number of new people into being interested in the Super Bowl. I think it's kind of fun. There is a ton of speculation about what might happen between Taylor and Travis tomorrow. And because it's the Super Bowl, people are betting on all of it. Proposition bets or prop bets are side wagers that don't directly affect the outcome of the game. And this year, there's an entire category of them devoted entirely to Taylor Swift. So we asked Victoria and Miri to weigh in on some of their favorites. Are you ready? First up, what color lipstick will Taylor Swift wear? Her signature red or something else? I think she'll wear red lipstick. She's always been such a such a fan of like a retro sort of look. I mean, red is a full album and I don't think she was spotted without red lipstick for like a year around that time period and she's kind of been bringing it back recently. So I see it happening. Will Taylor Swift wear a Travis Kelsey jersey at the game? My hunch is that Taylor loves a good vintage or like archives moment. And especially with her new album just being announced, it's already giving a bit of a retro sort of old school classic vibe. So I think rather than doing a Kelsey jersey, I wouldn't be surprised if now she does like some sort of like vintage Chiefs jersey. And that's something I'd just love to see. Will both of Taylor Swift's parents be at the game? But I'm sort of thinking that this is the Super Bowl. I think this is going to be a lot more about, you know, a big moment for the Kelsey family than it is, you know, a fun time with Taylor's friends. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see less of like Taylor's crowd this time and a lot more of like, you know, er everyone the Kelsey family has ever known. And this is a big moment for like Taylor to be part of the family. 
Will Taylor Swift be seen mouthing curse words during the game? I think yes. Totally. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely happened at a few games. And if you listen to her music over time, like the last album, she wasn't worried about dropping a few curse words in there. Definitely. And that woman has never been able to hide her feelings in her life. So if she's passionate about it, I think words are on the table. Will Taylor Swift be seen doing her signature heart-shaped hand sign to the pitch during the game? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say she tries to make the game be all about Travis and she tries to just support him and doesn't do anything symbolic that has to do with her as a performer. And I'm going to say Taylor won't do the heart hands, but I think Travis will. He did the last game and I, and I just love that he's sort of like yeah. giving a little nod to her fans as well. Okay, now the showstopper question. Will Travis Kelsey propose to Taylor Swift at the Super Bowl? I'm going to say no. <laughs> That's my personal my personal gut feel. I mean, I love that it's been like the most whirlwind romance ever. And I feel like everyone loves to love love. So I've really been enjoying watching this all unfold. But like, it's been five months. <laughs> I think it's literally been five months. So I don't know. I think that Taylor Swift is just a little bit too logical for that. She's a busy woman. So I can't see it happening. Taylor has this incredible ability to be a very, very public figure, yet be shrouded in mystery. She is actually quite a private person. The one thing I will say, though, is the Miss Americana football player and sort of misunderstood girl falling in love in like a really romantic proposal scenario is such a trope in Taylor Swift songs. I feel like there's so much of that imagery. So the fact that she's like living this out in real life now, I think is too funny. Like she must really be enjoying it doubly. And Miri, Victoria, how will you be watching? This year, I will definitely be wearing my Jonathan Taylor jersey, which if you don't watch football, Jonathan Taylor will not be playing at the Super Bowl. <laughs> but it does mean that I'll be wearing a Taylor jersey on the day. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm definitely excited to find a bar or a pub and like kind of get into the football culture in a way that I haven't previously and watch the game. Oh, touchdown! Miri Macon and Victoria Morton are the co-founders of T-Swift Dance Party Canada. The reality is uh, we're here to stay, and I don't think that there's a huge appetite for anybody to really shut us down. That's Dana Larson. He runs three magic mushroom dispensaries in Vancouver. It is illegal to sell psychedelic mushrooms in Canada, and Dana doesn't think it should be. When it comes to psychedelic access, the safest way to get it is from a shop like ours, where people understand how to use it, where they can guide our customers on proper use and answer any questions about medicinal use or social use or things like that. Dana Larson isn't the only person who feels that way. Lately, dispensaries selling psychedelic mushrooms have been popping up in cities all over Canada. Shops with names like Fun Guys and Shroom City. And even though there have been some police raids, it doesn't seem like they're going anywhere. Amanda Siebert is a Vancouver-based journalist who writes about the magic mushroom industry. She also works as a consultant for people interested in using psychedelics. Amanda, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Thank you so much for having me, Brent. Good morning. If I wanted to buy some magic mushrooms in Vancouver, how easy or difficult would that be? Well, I would say it's pretty easy. Uh, there are about a dozen stores located throughout the city of Vancouver. Uh, for a while, these stores were pretty concentrated in the downtown core. 
but now we're seeing more and more stores pop up. So I would say um, if you're someone that would prefer to have a in-person experience to buy magic mushrooms, obviously online is an option, but I would say it's quite easy in the city of Vancouver if you wanted to have that experience. I think the same thing is true in Toronto, where, where I'm speaking to you from, too. I've seen storefronts in parts of the city that aren't the downtown. So mm-hmm. how much has the storefront industry been growing in this country? Well, I can speak specifically to Vancouver. I have witnessed it grow substantially in the last several years. I think we saw the first sort of wave of stores opening sort of during the pandemic in 2020 and then 2021. I remember writing about... Um, six or seven stores. That was about a year ago. That's doubled since then, probably as a result of this, you know, hype, lots of discussion in the media about uh, psilocybin for mental health, microdosing, that sort of thing. So definitely catching on. Hmm. I I, want to talk about the clinical uses in in a moment, Hmm. but but it's not actually legal to sell psychedelic mushrooms in Canada for recreational use. So why are these shops able to stay open? What's going on? Totally. So you're very correct. Psilocybin is still a Schedule Three substance in Canada. Uh, and I think the reason that we're seeing um, sort of this leniency around psilocybin, particularly in the city of Vancouver, is because of our open drug culture. We have a very large uh, open drug market operating on the downtown east side. And I think for a lot of people that live in Vancouver, they see psilocybin as sort of less dangerous, less scary, less associated with, you know, this awful overdose crisis that has been ravaging our country for almost a decade now. And I think if we zoom out a little bit, uh, we look to law enforcement, it doesn't really seem that uh, psilocybin is a priority, given the other things that are going on in the city right now. What about people who live near the shops, though? Are are, are there people who are not happy about this, about a Schedule 3 controlled substance being sold without regulation from from a storefront? If there are people that have been sort of upset or annoyed by uh, psilocybin stores, I haven't really seen a lot of coverage of that uh, perspective locally. So the the shops are, I would say, very much accepted by most Vancouverites. What is motivating the sellers beyond the profits then? What, why are they taking this risk if, if they're stepping into a place where there is no legal protection for them? That's an excellent question. So Canada is actually one of the few nations in the world where if you are seeking out psilocybin for medical purposes, maybe you have a life-threatening condition, you can actually now apply with the help of your doctor to obtain psilocybin legally. And so I think these shops have sort of come in to fill the gaps because that process, if you were to go through that with your physician, it's a lot of hoop jumping. It's a lot of paperwork. It can take weeks, months. And so yes, definitely profit, I think is is part of the factor there. But I think, um, at least in the discussions that I've had with folks who run these shops, there is really a motivation to provide education and to answer questions for people about, you know, these kind of mysterious uh, substances. There is a difference, though, between having therapy in a clinical setting under the care of a healthcare professional and going to somebody whose profit motive is to sell you the substance, especially if, if you're talking about somebody who has PTSD or depression. Mm-hmm. What are the risks of those people independently trying to self-medicate from a product that they buy in retail? Definitely. So I, th- I would say that there are risks associated with everything. When it comes to psychedelics, we mm-hmm. talk a lot about um, before you approach a substance like psilocybin, things like preparation, uh, why you're taking a specific substance. Now, in a therapeutic container, that's a lot easier to do. The reality is 
because these substances are illegal, because therapy is expensive, most people cannot access psychedelic therapy in that way. And so there are ways to sort of go about using psychedelics in a way that is a little bit more above board, if you will. But as I mentioned, you know, access is challenging because the substance is not uh, regulated in the same way as uh, medicines or medications. You know, if these substances are legalized, how are people going to be able to get them? Let's imagine that the substances are legalized. I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen, but there have been regulatory changes in Canada. Mm-hmm. But if, if that signals a willingness to go further and these shops then become legal, they would mm-hmm. be under a regulatory framework. Do you sense that the industry is open to that? Would they welcome controls on the substances that they're now selling? I believe that some of the shop owners would be very open to that idea. In fact, you know, some of them are, uh, they possess business licenses already. They're seeking out further approval from the city. So I think there is a willingness to work with lawmakers, with policymakers, with city councillors and, and local law enforcement. If you think back to a couple of years ago in British Columbia, before cannabis was legalized, we had over 100 illicit cannabis shops in the city. And Vancouver was the first to sort of issue licenses for these stores before legalization of cannabis. So it's it's hard to say at this point, but I think we are sort of moving in the direction of um, some sort of legislative change. Well, the retailers who are setting up shopping, they're, they're making investments in this. So they must think that the path to the legalization of cannabis is a model. Absolutely. And that's been said a lot. I think a lot of people are um, hoping that that will be the case. But then we also have to look a little bit more closely at at these substances. I mean, I don't think anyone can argue with the fact that, you know, the stakes are significantly higher with a substance like psilocybin or LSD than they are with cannabis. Further research is really necessary. I know that that's happening um, in parts of Canada and all over the world. And so I think once we see a bit more solid research, a few more things coming out in, you know, respected journals, lawmakers are going to be a little bit more motivated to move on these, you know, legislative adjustments around psychedelics and psilocybin in particular. Amanda, you work in this field. You help people who want to use psychedelics safely. How would you like magic mushrooms to be regulated? What what do you want to see done? Hmm, I love this question. Um, I think that it would be Great to see these substances decriminalized. I think, you know, psilocybin mushrooms are very easy to to grow. Uh, I know the law permits you to grow four cannabis plants in your home right now. I think it would be really interesting if you could grow your own psilocybin. But, you know, given the, the way that industry is going, you know, we're seeing a lot of these large public companies. I don't think that's going to happen. I think we probably will see something that is more in line with legalization, more regulated. Um, but, you know, my hope would be for something that is sort of more in line with decriminalization. Amanda Siebert, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks, Brent. Amanda Siebert is the author of Psyched, Seven Cutting Edge Psychedelics Changing the World. Yeah, go ahead. You can dance along. You won't be the only one. 
I Will Survive was Gloria Gaynor's first major hit. It went to number one in 1978. It won her her first Grammy and made her queen of the disco era. But 46 years later, the song is more representative of her life now than it was then. And being a huge star in the 70s and 80s, Gloria Gaynor's fame dwindled and she struggled. She was married to her manager and the relationship was abusive. After a fall early in her career, she was temporarily paralyzed and went on to suffer back pain for most of her life. She got divorced in 2005, and when she wanted to rebuild her music career with a new manager and a new gospel album, she struggled to get any record label to take her seriously. Betsy Schechter tells the story of Gloria Gaynor's eight-year journey to make that record, which went on to win another Grammy in her new documentary, Gloria Gaynor, I Will Survive. The film hits U.S. theaters on Tuesday for one day before heading to Canada later this year. Betsy Schechter, welcome to Day 6. Thank you so much for having me. Before you started this doc, how much did you know about Gloria Gaynor? Not much. I mean, I knew I will survive, like probably a lot of people, but um, there wasn't much more I knew about her, which was probably good. But but when we watch this story, there are so many stories contained within this one woman. What made you decide that you wanted to make a film to tell those stories? You know, I had just done a music doc series for MTV International, and I'd been involved with the Nina Simone doc. And I just, you know, I, I met her, someone introduced me to her, and I was like, I just don't want to do something where we sit down and we look back on a biography as amazing as a past story can be. And when I met her, she was 71 and had just gotten her psychology degree. And she was embarking on this, making this album that nobody was really trying to help her with. So she was funding it herself. So I thought, well, this is interesting because there's more. I mean, the music's fantastic. Her past is fantastic. But there's a journey that we will see what happens with. But that, so that album, Testimony, that's her gospel album. That album went on to win a Grammy. But during the course of the filming, it becomes clear that no one wants to take that risk. No one wants her to be anything other than what she was 40 years ago. So knowing that she'd once been a huge star, what was it like to watch her struggle to find a label who would record or distribute this record that she wanted to make? You know, that was what was uh, like the part of this kind of process of filmmaking is you don't know how it's happening and you are there to see the struggle. She's not just telling you after she does something fantastic. Oh, it was really hard. You, it, it was, it was disappointing, but also eye opening. Um, but it's also a, a measure of don't let other people dictate the life you want to be. And, um, you know, and, and it's also eye-opening how incredibly popular she is. And, you know, I was with her in Spain and there's 60,000 people. And then she's just trying to get somebody to make a uh, help with the record deal. What's what's really nice is it was it, the, the musicians and, the, and, and people have came together. And there, there is a big community of artists that really want to help other artists. And that, that was very inspiring as much as the not knowing if she was ever going to get distribution and all that. Right, right. So, yeah. So it was the the narrative gets kind of distended and and it encompasses a lot. But I I want to go back to the first image that we see of her in the film. She's getting out of an automobile, and she's going into a studio. And when she got out of that car, I could tell that walking was something that was painful for her. Did you intend to show her sort of physically diminished in that first shot? 
it was what it was, you know, I, I did the, the, this was not like we were trying to put a square in a circle, you know, and I didn't really realize it, honestly. And, and then I saw the amount and I thought, wow, what's going to happen? You know, like it really, you know, um, it, it, but she also probably a lot of people wouldn't know the pain she was going through because she hides it. So, you know, she, she didn't, you know, when she gets on stage, she feels so joyful back then. And, mm-hmm. um, it was just what it was. It was unexpected for me too, the things that were happening. And then as they happened, I understood. And that too is what is so beautiful about Gloria and the film, you know, because we didn't know that things would happen afterwards that would actually be wonderful. So, But the, there's also, the, you know, the gift of her talent. And when we watch testimony being made, we, you have lots of shots at the studio. You have uh, the guest artists coming in to sing with her, how happy they are to be with her, how happy she is to be making music with them. That process is, I think, integral to the theme of the film, which is that there are things that sustain you and, mm-hmm. want, and, and help you to survive, right? So we see her at 65 when she's alone. She's divorced from her husband, who was her manager. There's a suggestion that her career is, is on a down trajectory. And then we see her at 75 and she's releasing this record that we were doubting that she was going to, that it was going to get made. And then she wins a Grammy for it. Unbelievable. <laughs> I know it's a, it's a, it's a terrific arc, but I, I, again, I, I just have to go back to the character at the center of it and the depth of her own belief in what she's doing and in her own talent. So she suggests it's her mother. She, she, she traces it back to the love she got as a little child. What do you think of that? I think that is a really important figure in her life. And, 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 um, you know, Gloria has Gloriaisms that I now tell my daughter. <laughs> like what? Like your designer's original and age is just a number, even like now where she's like, how old is that person? I'm like, oh, age is just a number. <laughs> and, um, just some other things, I mean, about like life and, uh, I think that that, and also, you know, her, as you see the rawness of her life when it, she it took a turn and she didn't have faith in herself and she had, didn't have confidence. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, through her faith that she found, um, as, as also helped her so much. And, and she's also a really very, very smart woman that, you know, also had therapy and all the things, the combined things that get you through, but yeah, her mother is still you know, that one moment, which was unexpected when I was talking to her, and this was later, and she talks about her mother and that moment, like you could, I could just, I felt it like, you know, when she's talking and she's crying and she has a picture of her mother, like it yeah. wasn't a planned thing. It wasn't, it, she, I don't think she even knew that was happening. Yeah, she, she holds the picture of, of her mother over her own face. It's an amazing moment in terms of an image. Right. And she didn't even notice that that was, you know, you couldn't see which yeah. picture. And, and, and I was just like, don't say anything. <laughs> I wanted to hug her. I was just yeah. like, just keep quiet and 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 just be in this moment with her, and and uh, it was really touching, and and it shows the power of of like just relationships and how somebody can have a good effect and and carry you through things. Your documentary is in theaters for one day in the United States, February thirteenth, which is Galentine's Day. Yes. Why that day? Well. well it, it's the universe working in mysterious ways because we're lucky enough to even, we really, really, really were a small team and we did this independently and we wanted to be in the theaters because what we saw in the festivals is people just, we've won a bunch of audience awards because I think people just feel together as a collective group. They're laughing, they're crying, <laughs> they're singing, 
And that's what Galentine's, I think, is, is just, you know, celebrating the importance of friendships. The title of the film is I Will Survive, and I Will Survive, the song, has been an anthem for so many people, and so many oppressed people have picked it up and, and gone with it as well, and it means a lot to them. But does Gloria Gaynor still love singing I Will Survive? Not only does she love it, she feels like it, it's a gift that she's honored to have received, you know, a gift from God, if mm. you will, but... Um, I have seen firsthand all the time people coming up to her and telling her their stories of what the song meant to them. She told me it was someone who almost committed suicide and they heard the song. And then I saw her, a woman that had cancer who was hugging her. And I saw, uh, I didn't see this, but her manager showed me a video. She was in the Eiffel Tower in the elevator and this uh, woman, her boyfriend had broken up with her. She was devastated and she sang, I will survive. And that was, uh, that was so important to her. Betsy Schechter, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much for taking the time and thank you for, um, you know, taking the time to talk about a film and about an amazing woman like Gloria Gaynor. Betsy Schechter is the director of Gloria Gaynor, I Will Survive. It will be in U.S. theaters for one day on Tuesday. It'll be available in Canada later this year. Still to come on day six, how arts organizations are loosening restrictions on audiences to make their performances more accessible. A Canadian journalist infiltrates an international network of violent extremists. They don't care who they maim or hurt or kill. White supremacists who want to spark a race war and incite the collapse of society. Embrace the chaos and from its ashes a new world shall rise to victory, white man! I'm Michelle Shepard and I'll take you inside this movement to learn where it came from and where it's headed next. White Hot Hate. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We are on public radio stations across the United States, and you can listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. And we're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. Come gather around people wherever you roam. And admit that the waters around you have grown. You've probably heard it before. Bob Dylan's The Times They Are Changing. That album is now 60 years old. It came out in 1964. And it is celebrated for intimately capturing a moment in time marked by social and political upheaval. Oh, the times they are changing. But there is one piece of the music's legacy that some would like to forget. The times they are a changing. Tharp Dylan Broadway. The times they are a changing. The Broadway musical. It opened in October 2006, and it didn't stay open for very long. The musical could not have been received more poorly. It got reviews that are hilarious to read because I didn't know the New York Times wrote so critically about anything. And despite a big, splashy Broadway opening with tons of advertising money and performances on TV. It closed in about three weeks in utter shame. That's Ray Padgett. I write the Bob Dylan newsletter flagging down the double E's. Ray posted a clip of the musical on social media that went viral. And in response, someone sent him a full bootleg recording of it. It is insane. It is psychedelic and chaotic 
and it's at the circus, so there's just constantly jugglers and clowns doing backflips to somber, serious songs. The colors are bright. I have watched the whole thing, and I'm still not entirely sure what the plot is. The musical takes place at a circus, but beyond that, it's hard to say what it's about. There's a ringmaster figure who's an older man. There is what I think is supposed to be his son. There's a love interest. And then the fourth lead character is some sort of dog boy who I'm not sure what or who he is, but there's a man who dresses up as a dog dancing around almost throughout. The musical isn't even about the album, The Times They Are A-Changing. It's more of a roundup of Dylan's greatest hits. The weird thing about any jukebox musical like this, you're trying to create a plot from these songs that are not connected at all. There is no plot that connects Blowing in the Wind with Like a Rolling Stone with Forever Young. Though there's no story in the way Bob Dylan wrote them, so just stringing them together and trying to superimpose a plot over it that has something to do with the circus is a truly bizarre choice. And while Bob Dylan's music relies on metaphors and symbolism in the storytelling, the musical takes the opposite approach. It is as far removed from what we think of as Bob Dylan as you can possibly get. For instance, Like a Rolling Stone. They decide, let's all roll around on stones. Not what the song is actually about, but sure. They, have a, they do man gave names to all the animals. They have someone come out dressed like a cow, because now they're singing about a cow, or someone comes out dressed like a pig or a sheep. Every single time they could do something either literal or enigmatic, they choose literal, which is extra strange for an artist like Bob Dylan, who's one of the least literal singer-songwriters in music history. I mean, he's famous for that. And the thing is, the person who made the musical had a successful blueprint to work from. The musical was the brainchild of the director and choreographer Twyla Tharp. A few years before the Dylan musical, she had done a Billy Joel musical called Moving Out. That was a huge success. It ran forever. It won Tony Awards. It was just a big hit. So it seemed fairly natural that she would do the same thing with another artist. And I'm not exactly sure why she decided on Bob Dylan, but she decided on Bob Dylan and essentially tried to recreate the same success she had had with the Billy Joel musical, but the results couldn't have been more different. As hated as the show was, many of the people involved went on to have enormous careers on Broadway. And for the rest of us, the times they are a change in the Broadway musical lives on in strange corners of the internet. Gone, but not quite forgotten. I'm glad that at least some sort of video is out there, so those of us weirdos and freaks who are curious enough to watch this train wreck now finally can. I know I thoroughly enjoyed actually watching this thing I just sort of heard legend of for many years, and I am in, I'm glad that other people are now able to do the same. Ray Padgett writes the Bob Dylan blog and newsletter, Flagging Down the Double E's. He's also the author of Pledging My Time, Conversations with Bob Dylan Band Members.
That's part of a trailer for the Canadian Opera Company's production of The Cunning Little Vixen. The show's run in Toronto will mark a first for the COC with a special relaxed performance set to take place on Tuesday. Relaxed performances are tailored to make the experience more welcoming and inclusive for people who find live events overstimulating or too restrictive, in particular people with disabilities or people who are neurodiverse. Rachel Marks says relaxed performances are an important step in building trust with the disabled community and making the arts more accessible. Rachel is a relaxed performance and accessibility consultant who's been working with the COC in preparation for next week's show. Rachel, good morning. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Brent. Thanks for having me. Initially, I thought relaxed performances meant making a few minor adjustments, like leaving the house lights on or lowering the overall volume or allowing people to make noise during the show. But it's actually so much more than that. What are some of the changes that audience members might notice during a relaxed performance? Well, it actually starts long before the show day. We prepare a detailed venue guide that takes the audience through arriving at the theater, gets them to see pictures of the inside of the space so that they can really get to know their way around. Then we also create something called a fact sheet, which takes people through all the sensory and content moments in the show. So for instance, in The Cunning Little Vixen, there's gunshots. So we we note when those happen so that people can prepare ahead of time. And then on the day of, When they come into the space, front of house is a lot more relaxed in their approach. We have a two low sensory break spaces set up. So if perhaps things are overwhelming in the space, people can take a moment uh, in a quiet room where they can just self-soothe and relax for a moment. In the auditorium itself, what we're going to notice is that the house lights are going to be left on at 50%. People are free to move around. We are allowing the use of devices. For instance, if somebody wants to play a game on their phone during the show so that their hands are busy, which means that they're able to focus on what's happening on the stage, then that's okay. You're not going to be asked to put your phone away. We will ask that it's on silent, of course, but these things are are really welcome fidget toys, expressing yourself in an authentic manner. So someone might jump up and clap or make a noise to show that they're excited. And that's okay. We're meeting people how they are. And we're saying, come on in. Art is for everyone. This opera is for everyone. Please join us. So that's what's happening in the auditorium. And it's fascinating. It's really interesting because it's completely the opposite of what we are sometimes briefed about how we should behave when we go into an auditorium. But what about what's happening on stage? Because you're dealing with professional performers who are used to audiences who observe certain conventions. What do you have to do to prep the performers for the audience that's going to be quite different from the one they may have had the day before? Yeah. And not only is it a different audience, the lights are on so they can actually see the audience, which is different for the performance, right? right? We actually had a really wonderful talk with all of the members of the cast of The Cunning Little Vixen. And we spent some time together. We went over why we're doing a relaxed performance, the changes that are made. They're very excited to be the first cast of the Canadian Opera Company to do a relaxed performance, which was really lovely. And it was great to see the engagement 
moment and how much they wanted to make sure that this was a really great performance, just like all of their other performances, but a really special performance for the audience. Now, in this particular show, the COC has decided that we're going to do an evening performance, we're going to do an adult show, because relaxed performances are quite often thought of as performances for children. But this is an adult performance. This is an opportunity for disabled audiences to experience the exact same artistic content as their non-disabled friends. So we've made the choice not to make technical changes to this show. Whereas if it was a Mm -hmm. children's show, we might make some technical changes, like turn the sound cues down, maybe change some lighting effects. But what we've done is we've outlined all of those things in the fact sheet. And then, you know, here, read the fact sheet if you'd like but we're not making any technical changes to the actual artistic content, which is really exciting, actually. And it's exciting for the cast and it's exciting for the audience as well. You mentioned how relaxed performances are often thought to be for children or or designed especially for an audience of children. Why is that? How do those two things align? Well, relaxed performances, so they started in the 90s in the UK, uh, came to North America uh, much later. Basically, they came out of TYA, Theatre for Young Audiences. These companies were seeing that the neurodiverse children in the audience, they, they weren't coming to the shows as much, or they weren't as welcomed. Relaxed Performance is born out of the autism community and started with Theatre for Young Audiences. And then we're realizing, you know what, like, Look at all these other people that are benefiting from relaxed performance, Uh, developmentally disabled people, adults beginning their dementia journey. Really, the list is endless. And so by creating for autistic children, we've actually created a model that works for a large percentage of our population. But when you lift the restrictions that are usually in place on audiences, there is an element of uncertainty in what the overall behavior of the audience is going to be on any given night. So what is it like for you when you attend one of these performances? What do you observe and and what notes do you make to yourself? I will tell you that the first relaxed performance that I actually attended, I openly wept because I hadn't seen such a joyful audience and such an engaged audience in many, many years. Yes, there is no such thing as fully accessible because my access needs might conflict with yours, Brent, which might conflict with someone else's. So by telling people through the venue guide and through the fact sheet what they can expect at a relaxed performance and what is expected of them, then we're really allowing people to make an autonomous decision as to whether or not this will be a good fit for them. Tell me about a moment from an event that has stuck with you, that that you always think about when you talk about the the rewards that are inherent in this kind of performance. I'm going to share a very short one. A mom, this is with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, came out of a show with their child and she said, oh, my child said that was awesome. And I was like, great, great, awesome. Thank you. She's like, no, you don't understand. My child doesn't usually speak. And I was like, Oh, wow. (laughs) Like, that's such a huge thing for someone who is selective about when they speak to to come out of an experience and just look at their parent and say, that was awesome. And the mom was almost crying and I was almost crying because we knew that this performance had really engaged their child and they had connected not only with the content, but also the format. And that's why I do what I do, because... I want to make sure that everybody has access to the arts. 
And, and that's why artists do what they do as well, to make that connection. Rachel Marks, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Brent. Rachel Marks is a relaxed performance and accessibility consultant. The relaxed performance of The Cunning Little Vixen is on Tuesday, February 13th at the Four Seasons for the Performing Arts in Toronto. Time, weather, and... Rift from the headlines. And here we go. It's Rift from the headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. This is the song, la 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 la, Elmo song. How are you doing? How are you doing? Hard times. Gonna make you wanna why you even try. Hard times. Gonna take you down and left for you to cry. Paramore with hard times. How Are You Doing by the Living Sisters and the opening theme from Elmo's World and Zinya Jamshed Kureshi of Oakville, Ontario correctly guessed the headline that we're looking for. Elmo asks how everyone is doing and the internet unloads. Congratulations, Zinya. A day six tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. I never meant to give you my songs, girl. What? And we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put rift from the headline in the subject and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address. One right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag, and you can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. Time, weather, and rift from the headlines. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, McKenna Hadley-Burke, Sarah Melton, and Pedro Sanchez. Our intern is Ashita Chopra. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott, and I'm Brent Bambury. It's one day to the Super Bowl, three days to Mardi Gras, and seven days till we meet again on Day 6. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.